Come on in to Margaret McSweeney's Kitchen for Kitchen Chat, where every week you'll meet chefs, cookbook authors, foodies, gourmets, and just plain people who love to eat. And along with laughter, chat, recipes, and stories about food, you'll sometimes also hear words of inspiration, love, and hope. As Margaret always says, kitchen chat is food for the senses and food for the soul. So grab a cup of coffee, put your feet up on a comfy chair, and get ready to spend a little time with Margaret and her friends. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Kitchen Chat. This is your host, Margaret McSweeney, and I am just so delighted that you're joining me in my kitchen today. I think you're really going to enjoy the show. We have two special guests, um, and we're going to tie in wine and coffee and getting some good insights from some real experts. The first guest I am delighted to introduce you to is the proprietor of Grand Cru Wine Merchants in Lake Forest, Illinois. His name is Craig Brodigan. Craig, welcome to Kitchen Chat. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, and, and congratulations on opening your new store new location. You. Well, I am not a uh, wine connoisseur by, by any means, but um, I'm just so glad you're, you're on the show here to share with our listeners who might be more of a wine aficionada um, some, some inside tips and, and great insights about, about wine. And I understand that um, your store, which is Grand Cru Wine Merchants there in Lake Forest, focuses primarily on wine and that you are offering some samplings and tastings throughout the holiday season. Uh, that's correct. We, uh, we are uh, based on wine, or I should say we focus on wine. Um, we have roughly uh, about a thousand selections from around the world, and the prices vary from uh, everyday drinkers from eight dollars all the way up to some you know very small boutique producers um, you know range in the hundreds of dollars per bottle. Um, tastings, like you said, uh, tastings are free of charge, and there's a list on our website because we're always changing uh, at www.gcwines.net. Just go under the special events. Uh, page and or column, and you'll see all the upcoming tastings. That sounds great. And listeners will make sure we put a link to uh, this website that Craig just mentioned. Now, with this holiday season, um, of course, uh, we, there are lots of different parties and festivities that, that people attend, and it's always nice to, to bring along a little hostess gift. Now, what is something that you think uh, a host or host would, hostess would really appreciate uh, wine-wise uh, um, re- to receive as a gift from a guest. And different well, one price of the, points, too. <laughs> one, one of the my favorite things, um, not just during the holidays, because we always think of it as a celebratory beverage, but uh, champagne or sparkling wine is uh, one of my favorite things to drink. Um, we have a number of uh, different producers, again, from around the world. Um, one that's a little bit unusual that we don't quite think a lot about um, is sparkling wine from Argentina. Um, uh-huh. and there is a uh, pr- small producer um, called Reginato. They make two wines. Um, one is a little bit more uh, mainstream than the other. Um, and the one I'm going to recommend today is the Reginato Blanc de Blanc. It's a uh, Trontes, which is an indigenous varietal to Argentina, and Chardonnay. 
um, $15.99 a bottle, and it has uh, lovely aromatics. Um, Torontis, very similar to um, kind of Riesling-esque. It has uh, wonderful um, aromatics to it, very clean, crisp. Um, so that's a nice alternative to going out and uh, going crazy, you know, with expensive champagne. Right. Um, Mid-price, uh, which uh, would be Duval Loire, uh, medium-sized producer, um, but lovely. Uh, I have a great price on it right now, twenty nine ninety nine. So usually when I say, you know, people ask about sparkling wines and yeah. where does champagne start, it's usually about $40. So this is a very unusual um, promotion that my distributor and Duval are running. So great, great product at a great price. And then finally, if money is no object, um, the 2002 uh, Pierre Peters Le Chantillon, uh, which is a Grand Cru site in Le Manil. Uh, so we're talking about real champagne now. Mm. And just kind of the top of the mark, um, 100% Chardonnay. And um, just something for a special occasion or if you're looking to really celebrate. And that's uh, $139.99 a bottle. Great. So is that kind of like a Dom Perignon? Um, yeah, you know, this is something that, uh, so, uh, one of my big passions is grower champagne and grower champagne is a number of people that farm a certain amount of land, their land, and mm-hmm. they produce their champagnes or their wines, uh, from that land. And when you start talking about larger producers like a Moet Chandon or Vuclico, mm-hmm. they produce, uh, or they get grapes from a number of growers throughout Champagne. And when they do that, you're blending all the different nuances of Champagne away to kind of make, or I shouldn't say of Champagne, but of the region that the grapes are coming from. Um, so rather than a wine that tastes of a place, you're making a wine that tastes of a style that the winemaker is making. Oh. Uh, is it better or worse? Uh, some people you know, go back and forth on that. But mm-hmm. I like to support little guys because that's who I am. And yes. um, just, oh, you know, something kind of unusual. Exactly. <laughs> and this is interesting. I did not realize that, um, you know, it, that they gather from different areas within the same region. So the yes. ones that you offer are very much grower champagnes, which are grown specifically. Uh, so the wines would all be and the grapes would all come from the same land. Yeah, it's and and there's within Champagne, there's just different regions, and within those regions, you have different tastes. Um, so something like we talked about Pierre Peters, and there in Manil, that is Chardonnay country. Um, a producer like, um, uh, let's see here, well, like Ayala. Anyway. If we can just take a step back, as I said, I am not a wine connoisseur. (laughs) So um, what kind of grapes go into making champagne? Is it a Chardonnay or does it it vary? It's typically, it varies. Um, So there's three main grape varietals that are in champagne. Uh, One is Chardonnay, one is Pinot Noir, and then the, the third grape varietal is Pinot Meunier. And depending on the region... Um, if it says Blanc de Blanc on the label, that wine will be made exclusively with white grapes or Chardonnay. Oh. 
Okay. If it says Blanc de Noir, it's white from black, and they're actually using the Pinot Noir grape in a larger percentage than the Chardonnay grape. Ah. Some pro- most producers will have kind of a combination of both or all three grape varietals or two varietals. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they will also, for a non-vintage, so something that doesn't have a vintage date on the label, you'll have what multiple... what does that mean? I'm sorry, what does a vintage date mean? A, a vintage date will mean that it comes from, all the grapes come from one specific vintage. So, oh, okay. like I had okay. mentioned, Pierre Peters Le Chantillon 2002, yeah. all those grapes come from the 2002 vintage. Oh, Most wines okay. that you'll see in the stores will have a non-vintage. It will just say, um, like the Duval Loire. It just says Duval Loire on the label. There's no vintage attached to it. And oh. what that what they do is to maintain their house style and to maintain consistency they will go and they will use a multi-vintages. So they'll have a lot of wine in reserve that they call reserve wines, and they'll blend those older wines with fresher wines to maintain that house style. So if you buy a bottle tomorrow and if you buy a bottle in five years, they'll very much be very similar in, in quality. Ah, so when you see reserve, because you know, cause I've seen that word on on bottles. What does that mean then? It's the wine that they've held back, or? Uh, well, there's in in America, there's no uh, formal laws that say reserve means uh, has any connotation to it. Ah. So uh, some people say yes, reserve is something that they find um, to be better. Uh, so it's sometimes held longer in barrel or bottle, and then it's released. But um, everybody has their kind of own, what they think reserve means, but sometimes it means nothing, just like old vines in California. Sometimes it doesn't mean anything. (laughs) (laughs) I am learning so much here. So champagne comes from three main grapes, and we talked about the Chardonnay and the Pinot Noir. And what I'm confused about, Pinot Noir would be a red grape. Is that right? So how do they make something that's clear and sparkly from something that's red? Well, that's the, a lot of people don't realize that um, when you have red grapes, when you squeeze them, you actually get white juice. Um, And what happens when, say, um, another one that everybody, you know, comes in and they ask for Zinfandel and I automatically take them over to the red Zinfandel uh, section of my store, they look at me and go, there's a red Zinfandel. <laughs> Everybody assumes that all the Zinfandel is white. Right. Uh, very, very similar kind of um, winemaking technique. So when you squeeze red, red grapes, you get white juice. And what okay. makes wine red is actually the skins. Um, oh. That's where all the pigment comes from. So you can make white Merlot, you can make white Cabernet, you can make white Pinot Noir, um, it's just about the skins and having the skins macerate on the juice for an extended amount of time. Oh, and I did not understand the word you just said before, having the um, skins what? Macerate. macerate. So you have the skins that sit with the juice. Okay. Okay. So they kind of marinate or whatever. It, exactly. That's what there's a, so after they, they press the juice off the, out of the skins, they take the skins and they put them back into that tank and then fermentation will actually pull all the pigments out of that. So that's where you get your color. 
that's where you get tannins and things like that. And so for a rosé, uh, um, a champagne rosé, um, it all has to do with the skin again? How does that happen? Exactly. There's two ways to make rosé champagne. Mm-hmm. One is to actually make a still Pinot Noir, and then so just regular Pinot Noir, and then they add that juice back into your champagne, so that's where you get your pigment from. Okay. Or you take your skins and you leave them on for a, a day or so, and that gives you that, that, that color. Okay. So those are the, the two different ways that you can have rosé champagne. Well, I am learning so much here, Craig. <laughs> I appreciate this. Now, there was a third grape you mentioned I'm not very familiar with, Pinot Meunier. Meunier. Okay. Yes. And what is that? Uh, it's a, it's a third varietal. It's kind of uh, very similar to Pinot Noir. Uh, you don't see quite a lot of it, um, but it, it, it does um, exist. And there, there are some wines that are uh, Pinot Meunier dominated, um, especially in Champagne. Uh, in Oregon and California, some of the sparkling producers make a still Pinot Meunier. So again, very much like Pinot Noir, um, lighter to medium bodied, um, with the aromatics and 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 uh, characteristics of Pinot Noir. Um, maybe you know slightly different, but along the same kind of lines. Okay, and so you are finding some really nice sparkling wines in Argentina, then. Yep. Yeah, there's okay. only a few there's only a few producers that I know of, but mm-hmm. you know, it offers something a little bit different if the you know, the person that you're buying a gift from knows a lot about wine. It's right. you know, something a little unusual. Yes. And and so and now I'm kind of understanding what you were talking about before, where a blanc de blanc, uh Reginato, that would mean it was a, from a Chardonnay group uh, from a well, Chardonnay it, grape or yeah, it just has to be from white wines. So, okay. like I said, okay. it's, you know, it's Chardonnay and Tarantas, so two white varietals that make oh, make that up. Oh, okay. So that's another grape then, Tarantos, but Tarantas. in Argentina. Okay, yes. and in Argentina then. Yes. Okay, and do you find that grape um, in California and other places, or is it just, just really indigenous to Argentina? I've never seen it anywhere other than Argentina. <laughs> Interesting. So whoever receives the sparkling champagne, sparkling wine from Argentina will get a taste of a new grape. Yes, yes. Oh, that is so fun. Now, are you seeing any other um, different places pop up in terms of being, uh, being surprising sources for delicious wines and champagnes um, besides Argentina? And has Argentina been in the? Have they been producing wine for a while, or is this a fairly new um, uh, new trend you're seeing? Uh, Argentina has been um, they've been producing for roughly about twenty five years or so, mm-hmm. maybe thirty years, and the quality in the last few years has really skyrocketed, um, partly. Because um, land at one point was very inexpensive, so rather than grow a winery in the region where you already had a winery, um, say you owned a winery in Napa Valley, to expand your winery in Napa Valley would be very cost prohibitive because land there is very scarce mm-hmm. and it's very expensive. Um, you have very similar types of conditions in an Argentina 
or someplace like Argentina where you can go and your money will go a lot farther. Um, it'd be a lot less expensive to set up another winery in another location. And because they're in the Southern Hemisphere, if you were a California winemaker, rather than making wine once a year, you could make wine twice a year. Because you could fly down there and you can make wine in your off-season in California. Oh, that um, does make sense in terms of expanding the seasons. Now, what exactly. about Brazil? Because Brazil and Argentina are quite, you know, close proximity-wise. Uh, are you seeing any wines coming from Brazil at all? I've never seen anything from Brazil. Um, it's something that's never never uh, posed its, you know, nobody's ever brought anything for me to taste or uh, shown me anything from Brazil. I'm sure there's wines uh, from there, uh, just haven't gotten to me yet yeah so. no it'll be interesting because they always seem to um to to introduce interesting things to the world because you know yeah. like the um guarana and acai and uh yeah so that 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 will be interesting to uh follow to see if some new wines come from brazil um so argentina has become one of your your favorite um places for sourcing some excellent uh Sparkling wines and wines at at really good price points. It sounds like even with yeah. um, importing and everything, there's some great price points and great gifts. Yeah, there's their quality is extremely high, and I think that you're going to find a lot of great wines for very reasonable prices um, that will compete with other wines from around the world that you know much less. Um, yeah. It's something that I've kind of found in the last three or four years of just trying, you know, wine after wine. Cause it's mm-hmm. Part of my job is just tasting wine. And while everybody thinks it's a glamorous job, I'll have to say that there's <laughs> a lot of, there's a lot of crummy wine in the world. So that's kind of my, uh, you know, I taste them. So you don't. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. So do you get to travel a lot then with your business? Uh, unfortunately I don't travel as much as I'd like to. I have uh, two young boys at home and uh, I'm a single single person entity at the store. So I spend the majority of my time either at home or uh, at the store. And when we do close for vacation, uh, I typically go someplace where the beach and uh, fruity cocktails. So. <laughs> that sounds fun. Now, you've given us some great ideas in terms of hostess gifts, uh, unique hostess gifts. What are some accessories that you have um, uh, that make great gifts in the store as well that you can come along with? Do you carry glassware and other types of um, accessories for the wine enthusiasts? I do. I have uh, a, a, the um, line of Riedel glasses, which was probably the premier uh, wine um, glass. There's a number of the, uh, you know, different uh, glasses for different varietals, but for the most part, I kind of stick with three or four if you're, you know, kind of trying to expand your glass selection uh, at home. Uh, I have several different wine uh, openers. I have the uh, screw pull line, which I highly recommend. Great, easy to use corkscrew if anybody has. Um, any problems with a waiter's corkscrew or has arthritis in their hands, uh, okay. just has a problem opening wine. Uh, it's very easy to use these corkscrews. Um, 
And that's good to hear that there is an easy-to-use corkscrew. You know, I don't know how many of my corks have landed <laughs> into the wine bottle because of the corkscrew. And, and I've tried these, you know, fancy ones. And um, uh, for Thanksgiving, I was trying to open the bottle of, of wine. And, um, you know, it was just awful. This new one did not get it off. So <laughs> I'm glad to hear about um, this this cork. What's it called? Scruple. Okay. okay, so that's one that you recommend, and it's easy to to handle. That's, yeah, very easy. That's great. Now, back to glassware, does it really make a difference with taste, Craig, in terms of what wine glass you use with a specific wine? Is there a um, reason for the shape? Well, the Riedels will tell you, those are the people that own it, that every wine has its own glass. And um, while that sounds great in theory, uh, some of us have less money than others. So um, like I was saying earlier, the sometimes when you look at all the glasses, it's quite daunting. Um, but it's not going to hurt anybody if you drink a white wine out of a red wine glass. Um, so if you are looking at Riedel glasses, the four... Uh, stems that I have at home and they're pretty much cover a broad range of varietals would be the Cabernet glass, the Mm -hmm. Pinot Noir glass, the Champagne flute, and the Chardonnay glass. So your Chardonnay glass for your white wines, your Champagne for sparkling wines, Cabernet for any kind of Cabernet or Merlot, Malbec, things of that, you know, heavier red wines and mm-hmm. Pinot Noir or Pinot Noir glass for uh, aromatic wines. So Nebbiolo um, from Italy. So your Barolos, Barbarescos, Pinot Noir, um, things like that. And how did those differ um, between a Cabernet and a Pinot Noir stem? Is one like wider brimmed or, or how can you tell the difference? Yeah, the Pinot Noir bowl actually is a lot wider with a narrower um, uh, opening at the top. So what it's doing is it's capturing all those aromatics and it's very focused towards your nose. Where the Cabernet glass is a little bit longer and taller, uh, maybe not necessarily have as much aromatics as Pinot Noir. So it's just a different shape. And the shape of the bowl actually also then uh, helps when you're drinking the wine, it places it different places on the tongue as well. So it kind of hits your flavor profiles on, you know, flavor tasters on your tongue differently for each glass. Interesting. Well, I've learned all about stemware <laughs> today, too. <laughs> now, you always hear, you know, the wine connoisseurs say, oh, and this was such a good year for um, this type of wine. What makes something a really good year for wines, and, and can you share, um, you know, a few really good years and maybe um, some special wines that you have in, in stock? That were sure. Fun? Something, uh, you know, some people think a, a great year has to do with just what's in the bottle, but it really starts um, very early in the season and, you know, January, February, March, in the early spring um, with you know, conditions that you, you know, help with the rest of the year. So a very, you know, wet spring may have uh, disastrous effects with, you know, the summer temperatures and the summer set 
uh, of grapes. So, you know, long, modest growing season, um, not too hot, not too cold, um, basically is kind of, you know, helps the grapes along. And number one, first and foremost, it's an agricultural product. So you're going to have variations, vintage to vintage, no matter how great the vintage is. And that's what the winemakers, you know, strives is to try to make the best wine that they can every, right. every vintage. Um, you know, sharing vintages is hard, a hard thing because some people like certain vintages and some people don't. But what I can recommend is some, you know, regions that are very consistent in their winemaking um, you know, and every time you seem to go and get a bottle of wine from that region, it, it, you know, no matter what, at what price point, uh, always delivers. So, uh, Washington state wines from the Columbia or Walla Walla Valley are very consistent in quality. Hmm. Um, California is another one. Um, you don't typically see a, a lot of fluctuation, um, in that, um, you know, in California in a decade, you may have two okay vintages, but eight, you know, very good vintages. Um, the Rhone Valley in France, another region that's very consistent. Um, those three, you know, Argentina, again, year after year, it seems like they're doing a, a, a lot of great things. And part of the, the, the reason behind that is a lot of these places are deserts. Uh, like Washington State, they have very little rainfall. Uh, they really deal more with frosts and freezing than they do um, with wet weather. And that that really wet weather is kind of the big detriment. Not only is it diluting the grapes because you're you know it's a plant, and when you water a plant, it sucks all the moisture up and goes into the fruit. Um, but you also have rot and things like that that you have to deal with. Yeah, um, so I assume there are no wineries in Seattle when you uh, talk about Washington State. Well, the, you know, it's funny you say that because there are wineries in in Seattle, but oh. what they do is they, they truck the grapes in. Um, uh, <laughs> okay, but they don't grow actually, them there. <laughs> exactly. There's actually uh, wineries in Alameda, in, you know, outside of Oakland, um, uh-huh. and they just truck the grapes down and, and make the wine there. You don't necessarily have to be right next to where you're growing the grapes. So. Oh, you don't. Okay. Nope. Oh, well, I never knew that. So it doesn't <laughs> hurt the grapes in terms of transporting them and processing them elsewhere. It's, um, okay, I, I'm learning so much about this. But you, you grow the, the grapes basically in a desert is yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. It's the best climate for that. Well, it's not the it's not the best climate, but what you find is it's very consistent because you uh, have very very consistent weather and when you have very consistent weather then you have very consistent results. So, you know, this year is very good, next year is very good, the year after is very good. And one year may be a little bit better than the next because they may have, you know, the sun may have come out a little bit more um and the grapes just got a little bit riper, but if you're looking for consistency and you're looking for a bottle to go to you know, time and time again, those those regions really kind of deliver the goods every time you go and grab something. Okay. Oh, this this is fascinating to learn about. Now, what about the storage of wine? I mean, so many people are like building elaborate wine cellars and um, things like that. What uh, what 
can you say about that? And what are the options for those who don't want to invest in a, a wine cellar? What are some proper ways to store? Well, you always want to keep your wine in a cool, dark place. Okay. Uh, what you don't want is very um, sudden or consistent heat and cold spikes. So you want nice, slow, gradual temperature changes. Uh, if you've got a basement, I highly recommend putting all your basement, all your wine in your basement. Okay. Um, take it off the shelf above your refrigerator or out okay. of your dining room right in front of the window where it's cooking and <laughs> put, it in a, put it in a nice cool place. Um, if, you know, and, and most people are buying um, wine for near, near, near term consumption. So, you know, if you're going to put your wine, you know, in front of your dining room window for a couple of days, it's probably not going to kill it, uh, but it's probably not going to help it either. Um, laying it on its side is another uh, thing that definitely does help. Um, you know, and why it, is that, that, that you place it on its side to help? That's what I've always heard, too. What, what does that do? Well, you know, you're talking about keeping the cork moist. Um, you know, a lot of people will, will come in and they'll say, oh, this wine is bad. The cork crumbled. Well, if the cork crumbled, but it still kept the seal, the cork still did its job. Um, so <laughs> if, it's, if it kept the seal and it made a pop when you opened it, it's still okay. good. Or it might be the, the corkscrew. <laughs> well, that too. Um, you know, cork is a natural product. So, you know, sometimes it just doesn't come out in one piece. Right, um, right. But that's typically the you know the reasoning why is to keep the the cork somewhat moist. Okay. Um, and it, it just helps the whole kind of natural aging of wine. Um, so and cool and dark. It, and I'm sorry, I I always hear about this aging of wine. Why is it that wine gets better? Is that right? As it ages. Um, what, well, something that some things do and some things don't. Um, when you really talk about aging wine, I'm talking about 1% of the world's wine, which is, you know, some of the best vineyards in the world producing, you know, the top tier of wine um, that can really age 20, okay. 30, 40 years. That's, that's kind of what aging in my mind, you know, kind of think of, okay. um, but all wine will age. Even the $8 bottle of wine that you just bought today, uh, if you forget about it for a year, it's not going to go bad especially if you're storing it correctly. Okay. Um, we in this country, in America, we like to drink wine now. We don't like to wait. We don't like to hold on to anything. Mm -hmm. um, so um, mm -hmm. the other factor that kind of plays into that is wineries release their wine earlier and earlier and earlier. So uh -huh. we're drinking wine that's super duper young. Um, I have reds now that are 2010s in the store. Um, 2011s are right probably around the corner from Southern Hemisphere. Um, so they're pushing their wine out faster and faster. And these wines are extremely young. Uh, mm. That's why sometimes when you open a bottle and you taste it and you go, yeah, you know, it's okay. And you put the cork back in it and you sit it on its counter. The next day you go and you grab a glass and you go, wow, that's really, really good. Well, uh, okay. That, that's, that's why. That's, that's what we talk about aging. It just kind of smooths the wine out, kind of gets everything back in the balance. Um, the, the tannins subside. It makes it just a little bit easier to drink. Um, so, you know, when you, when you don't like that one bottle that you just bought, 
right. put the cork in it and try it again tomorrow because nine times out of ten, it's just a little young. And mm-hmm. uh, typically things get a little bit better as they sit open. So. Okay. No, that's great to hear. Now, what about um, champagne? And I have a funny story about this. I'll never forget with my, uh, I guess, senior, being a college senior, my trip to Paris. It was such a, a wonderful treat. And I bought a bottle of Dom Perignon. And, uh, you know, and, and for a student's budget, that was big. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to save this for my wedding night. And, and uh, then, goodness, how many years later was it? <laughs> Probably, um, yeah, maybe. Maybe like 10 years later, um, I opened it and it it was just flat. Does, does yep. champagne not age? And I tried to store it, you know, properly as, as I could. I mean, what what happens with, with champagne? And is that something that you shouldn't keep? On the uh, well, champ- a lot of people do age champagne. They do cellar champagne. Uh, and one of the things that happens with champagne is that the, the bubbles actually do go away. Um, so that's okay. just part of it. it. It is still wine. Mm-hmm. I know what a lot of people forget about is champagne is champagne, and it's you know again this celebratory beverage. But in reality, it's it's white wine. Um, so it will take on a lot of characteristics of aged white wine. You know, aged Chardonnay, aged Burgundy. Um, and you will lose some of the bubbles. Um, I've heard kind of conflicting things. If you should put champagne on its side, if you should keep champagne standing up, uh, I've yet to come up with my own answer uh, as we can never age champagne here because we always drink it at my house. But, um, <laughs> but yes, it, it will actually lose its bubbles over time. So you didn't probably do anything wrong, okay. but you were, you were probably looking for that celebratory pop and it wasn't right. there. <laughs> oh, well, but it had, it came in a lovely box. I remember it was just, you know, it was just beautiful and um, yeah. it was the thought that counted. And I, <laughs> yeah. But okay. So that, so what would be your absolute shelf life? Because I know probably several listeners out there might have a pantry full of hostess gifts that, that came along or they, they purchased a bit too much in inventory for a party and, and it's just still sitting there. At what point do you toss or keep, I guess, in terms of, of red wine and white wine? Well, you know, it, it, I always lie on the side of youth. So, you know, if you're looking at the labels and you're going, wow, this is 10 years old, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a good chance that it's probably not at the best. But okay. the only way you're going to know is if you open it. Uh, so get that handy corkscrew out and start going <laughs> through the bottles. And, you know, it's also the holidays and, you know, right. great bottles of wine are consumed during the holidays. So exactly. now's the time to start opening them. But, um, you know, it, it really depends on the wine. If you've got a lot of $10 wine that's 10 years old, most likely not. Um, but if it was stored correctly, you never know. You may have that one that one kind of oddball out there. But usually I would say white wines anywhere between three and six years and red wines, especially domestic wines, no more than 10. No more than um, ten, but you yeah. could use it as cooking wine. I assume if if you just don't want to throw out a full bottle, can you repurpose it? Um, well, I wouldn't cook it with anything that you wouldn't drink. So oh, okay. Try some, and if it's good and it tastes good, then drink it. Uh, okay. If it's not good, you know, if you taste it and it's not drinking great, I wouldn't cook with it. Uh, oh. You know, you always want to use the best quality ingredients when you're making a dish, and if 
something tastes funny, well, your end result is going to taste funny too. So, okay, <laughs> that is wise. When in doubt, throw it out. Yeah, <laughs> the old adage goes. Oh, Craig, thank you so much for sharing your expertise on wine with us, and and I encourage the listeners to check out Craig's new um, venue, Grand Cru Wine Merchants, there in Lake Forest, Illinois. Uh, for those who live out of the state, you can order and access uh, via the internet, www.gcwines.net. So thank you so much, Craig, for being thank on you very much. chat, all of us. I am delighted to, to introduce you to um, Tim Coonan. He is a classically trained chef um, and is also a chef instructor at Washburn, and um, we'll go through quite a bit of his uh, repertoire. It's very impressive. He was at Spaja and P.F. Chang's and Gordon Sinclair in the early 90s, um, classically French-trained chef who also worked with master chefs in Paris, such as Christian Etienne and Michel Messonnier. Um, I just can't wait to for you all to hear about his passion of coffee. So join me now as we welcome Chef Tim Coonan into the kitchen for some kitchen chat. Welcome, Tim. Hi, hi Margaret. How hi. are you? Just fine. I'm just delighted that you are with Great. us today. And, and I can't wait to hear about your own culinary journey, which has taken you to some of the finest kitchens in, in, in Paris and throughout France, and um, and then you, too, ended up on a unique journey in, in terms of going back to what you really love, and that is coffee. So This, this, is, this is true, Margaret. I, it's, uh, yeah, it's amazing that a, 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 a guy from Indiana, from a small town in Indiana, is, I've, had a, I've had a wonderful journey in the culinary field and has taken me to France and New York and uh, ended me up here in Chicago and working at some really... Um, and yes, coffee has been, for 25 years, been a um, something that's been... A passion of mine, something that's mm-hmm. been uh, uh, not only uh, taking care of me early in the morning, but been wonderful uh, uh, gifts to family and friends, and um, and it's just a great vehicle for conversation in the in the morning. With, yes, because uh, we friends. always just um, converse and and connect over coffee. That's such an essential part of of the experience and and um i cannot wait to get into all the coffee talks but first of all we must chat for just a couple of minutes about the rainbow room there in new york city where you yeah so so just tell us a little bit about that and then i'd love to share my connection with rainbow room a little personal story i haven't shared with anyone well, the Rainbow Room was my first job out of culinary school at Johnson and Wales, mm-hmm. and um, so that was in the um, very early early nineties. Um, and um, I, uh, it was a little bit daunting. I mean, the Rainbow Room is uh, does thousands of meals every day, and um, as a as a young culinarian, it was. Um, it was it was it was a little bit frightening and uh <laughs> but but I was able to uh, survive and thrive in the environment and the high pressure and uh and and have a lot of fun too and living in New York certainly was boy it was um 
I, I, I had, I had eye-opening experiences and just <laughs> walk around and, and be amazed at the incredible, uh, city of New York and the history and the buildings and the Statue yeah. of Liberty and all those, all those things. Yes. Um, and it's a culinary mecca there and the rainbow room, of course, there on top of, it's the Rockefeller Center, right? The, yep. Yep. Yeah, yep. 65th floor of the Rockefeller Plaza, right? Yes. Is an iconic place with a fabulous restaurant, of course, Rainbow Room. And I'd love to share my special connection uh, with the Rainbow Room and, and a story, and, and not to um, go on a, too much of a tangent. But anyway, yeah, my please. husband, yeah, my husband and I met in New York. I'd lived and worked there seven years in the financial district. And um, he proposed to me, and I was so excited. Oh, in August. at the Rainbow Room. Well, well, not at the Rainbow Room, but there's something oh, okay. really special tied in. So it, that was in 1990. And um, we decided, oh, you know, if he'd set it up, we'd go celebrate at the Rainbow Room. I'll never forget. It was a rainy summer evening, and I had the big umbrella and checked the, the umbrella and everything. And, and in my excitement of the evening, which, oh, it was just so wonderful there, I forgot to bring home my umbrella. <laughs> I forgot to go to the coat check. But here is the very special, special part of that story. I had hung on to the little um, plastic coat check, uh, uh -huh. jig, whatever you call it, uh, the number. And lo and behold, the number was 216. And that was actually the date, February 16th, that we had planned and made plans to get married. So wow. it is just so special. I still have that little plastic coat tag. Sorry, Rainbow Room. I hope you haven't missed it. <laughs> you know, Margaret, you'll never guess what my birthday is. No, February 16th. February 16th. Oh, yep. Wow. February 16th, 1965. Is this, yeah. Isn't yep. that a small world? Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> New connections wow. to the Rainbow Room with 216. Hey, cool. So, Cool. Yeah, so pardon my yeah. tangent, but I just wanted to to share that. But how... oh, that's 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 wonderful. Oh well, thank you. So I'm just so curious about how you went from the Rainbow Room into starting this wonderful new business. And listeners, I can't wait for you to hear about this. It's called Big Shoulder Coffee Works, and um, the email address, uh, or rather the website, and let me make sure I get it right, Tim, is www.bigshoulderscoffee.com. Yeah. And yeah. Um, that is just being constructed now, but there is a way to, to reach uh, Tim Coonan, um, if, you know, regarding coffee. But he is, you know, here he is a classically French-trained culinary chef in Paris and France and um, Paris, France, and also in New York and Chicago. And um, he went back to something he really loved, and that is roasting yeah. coffee. So could you tell us kind of this? The well, I've been, I've been a home roaster of coffee for many years, and, and hmm. these have been uh, for my – the coffee that I've roasted has been for my own personal consumption, or it's been for family and friends around the holidays and mm -hmm. special occasions, things like that. And really, the you know, I I got to tell you the 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 birth of of uh, of, of Big Shoulders Coffee uh, coincides with the birth of my five year old daughter Kate. Oh. And um, so the lifestyle of, of a chef 
isn't really conducive to uh, family life. Mm. And um, when Kate came along, uh, my wife and I, we, we, it might, you know, in today's day and age, it may sound a little bit old fashioned or, or corny, but, uh, we really believed that it was important for one of us to be, uh, be around for our daughter. And sure. To be, and that's um, not corny or old fashioned at all. I think that's wonderful. Yeah. And you know what? I can, I, I I'm really, I'm lucky because, uh, because, uh, so, uh, I, I digress. My, my, so my wife's career was really taken off at the time of Kate's birth, mm-hmm. and I had just finished up a, a, a consulting uh, contract and was heading back to Chicago. We were moving back to Chicago from the West Coast, and um, you know uh, we decided that uh, I would step away from restaurant operations and I would teach. So I started teaching, and teaching is uh, it's a, I mean, teaching it by itself is a is a wonderful uh, job. I, I I work I work thirty hours a week, yeah. and I get to I get to still keep my hands on the pans, as it were, and, and call myself a chef. Yes. And 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 touch touch and develop young uh, culinarians and and uh, help them along their their career and and encourage their passion. But the bigger the bigger picture here is that it, it's allowed me to be a father. And there's not many chefs, sadly, that can um, that can claim that. And um, so, so, but at the same time, <laughs> having worked in restaurants and high these high stress environments, uh, you know, like some of these really wonderful restaurants, like Spiaggia, for instance, uh, yeah. where I was a chef de cuisine. Uh, mm-hmm. it, you know, it, it, you know, I work, I was working 80, 90 hours a week and uh, wow. six days a week and long out, long, very long hours, 16, 17 hour days. And that's the, that's the life of the chef. And that's right. the, that's the image that you don't get to see on TV where it, it seems very glamorous on TV, but uh, uh, you have to have a real, real passion to do this sort of, yeah. sort of work. It's, it's a, it's an act of contrition is what it is. Right. And, um, so when, uh, so there's not many chefs that get to be really there for their kids. And, uh, so I consider myself really lucky to be able to be there for Kate. And, yeah. um, but in spite of that, you know, I was going kind of crazy. And on those days where Kate would take, uh, you know, two, two hour naps, you know, a couple times a day. And, um, uh, you know, I've, I've, I can't leave the house. I'm kind of trapped. So I went back to something that that I that I've been doing for a long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I, I got to tell you, the first time I roasted coffee 25 years ago right. in a sauté pan in an apartment yeah. in Indianapolis, and <laughs> and uh, I, I'm surprised my neighbors didn't call the fire department. Oh. Uh, it, it created so much. It cre- so roasting coffee creates a lot of smoke and a lot of fumes good albeit good really uh, wonderful fumes but uh-huh. but it creates a lot of fumes and smoke so yeah. i started roasting coffee four years ago on our back porch and um started You're in delivering chicago it land right in chicago yep okay. in chicago right in the city and i started delivering it in the afternoon with kate sleeping in the back back uh, seat of the car Aww. and uh we we got up to 40 customers now, and when you and, say customers, uh, you're talking like wholesale. Yeah, well, yeah. No, customers. I would uh, so it started out as just gifts to friends and family, and then it, it became friends of friends and friends of friends of friends, and 
and and so it they were calling me asking me for coffee and they wanted to get on board and so what I did was I would deliver every week I would deliver a pound of coffee to people's door and I would put it in their mailbox or I'd stick it on their back porch or I'd you know put it in a secret place and uh, they were getting the freshest coffee available and I, I, it was probably costing me more more in gas money than it was <laughs> Uh, you know, then I actually broke even, but, uh, but it, it's been fun. So hey. there's, so we, we've established that there's a, there's a, there's a viability in the market. And, mm-hmm. um, and so we, we are, we are looking at a, a retail space okay. and uh, are probably going to get that going in mid to late January. And that's at 1105 Chicago Avenue in Chicago. And it's right near the intersection of Chicago, Milwaukee, and Ogden. Oh, that's a great intersection. It's a, it's a great location. So we're, we're super excited. And, and uh, so that's, that's kind of how it's taken off. Oh, and, and I just cannot wait to learn here. You're the coffee connoisseur, if I could give you that title. (laughs) You know, I love to drink coffee. I love to drink coffee. Could you provide? I love to hear that. Yes, myself and the listeners, just kind of a little bit of background on coffee. You you say, oh, I like to roast coffee. I mean, are you roasting the beans and and where do you source the beans? What determines, you know, what type of bean is a better type? You know, if you wouldn't mind just giving us. uh, Yeah, sure. Of course. (laughs) So, so the coffee's grown uh, in, in very small uh, regions around the world uh, Mm -hmm. in Central and South America and in Africa and in uh, Southeast Asia and uh, Indonesia, and um, it, it's uh, so the birthplace of coffee is in Ethiopia. And legend oh. has it that um, that there was a uh, a goat herder that uh, discovered coffee centuries ago when his goats were eating the particular red cherry. It's called coffee is the, the the fruit of the cherry bush is called a cherry, and um, they so the goats became very animated and were dancing goats, and so <laughs> this this goat herd uh, took some of these berries and, and boiled them in some water and and uh, liked what he liked what he found. So, um, but roasting brings out these really wonderful aromatic uh, flavors and aromas in coffee, and and coffee is really complex once it goes through the roasting process um it it becomes more complex than even wine and and wine is quite complex but um so there's several you know acids and sweetness and uh fruitiness and earthiness and and uh, different uh flavors that will can can be developed through the roasting process whether it be say a a light dark or a medium kind of a roast Mm -hmm. and um and how does that and i i'm so sorry i'm just trying no no that's fine First of all, back to that berry. So, does does coffee is coffee really like red berries? Or well, it's, it so it has a it, it's it's kind of like um you know like we would consider a um, a cherry like a, yeah. a sweet cherry. Mm-hmm. So it has a red fruit on the outside. That's oh. really it's inedible. There are some people that are trying to do some things with it to create. Um, uh, use it to uh, uh, till back into the land to create sustainability, and it's used as a as a um, mulch and and this sort of thing. Um, but it's essentially an inedible uh, husk on the outside, and, and on the very inside are these is what we actually consider the the coffee 
uh, bean. And, so really, uh, so, all these yeah. like a pit, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. So it gets, you know, somewhere, I mean, it's amazing how these things happen, but somewhere, somewhere along the line, somebody decided, hey, I'm going to take these, these uh, inedible things and I'm going to take the pit and I'm going to roast it and I'm going to grind it and I'm going to boil it in some water and boy, it, it tastes pretty good. Um, you know, it's just some of, the, some of the things that we eat, you know, oysters, for instance, or lobster, or, you know, just somebody somewhere along the line was hungry enough or thirsty enough to uh, to do these things. And that's really amazing. And the, the, the journey of food and how food develops. That is um, amazing. And, and to, to assume it wasn't poisonous when they were ingesting yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, you try it. No, no, I'm not going to try it. No reservations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, wow. That, that is great. So anyway, you have always had this, this love of roasting. So you are essentially creating new coffee flavors from the beans. You can, yeah, absolutely. You can create different flavors, and, and you know, either you know, I've always always thought that the chef's job is to do one of two things. It's either to, well, first of all, get the best get the best ingredients that you can afford. You don't have to go out and you know get the fanciest ingredients. It's just what you can afford or what your customers can afford. So uh, achieve that. Get the best ingredients that you can afford, and then either do one of two things. Get the most out of it that you can using a variety of techniques. And, you know, in the culinary world, we, you know, use grilling and sauteing and roasting and braising or input as little as possible into it, you know, meaning salt and pepper and maybe a squeeze of some lemon and maybe a little drizzle of olive oil and some fresh herbs, something like this. But we don't want to mask those flavors too, too much. So, you know, I, I, everything I do uh, with coffee comes from that culinary training. It comes from that perspective of, of either, you know, get the best quality that, that uh, people can actually afford right. and want to have and don't mess with it too, too much. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, so the roasting itself is the most dramatic part of, of uh, dealing with the bean. And um, what makes it dramatic? What, what do you mean? Well, you know, when we take these green beans, and they're essentially, you know, if we were to take these green beans and put them into a, a coffee grinder at that point, they would break the coffee grinder. They're very, very hard. They're like stones. They're like a, like a cherry pit, you know, yeah. just like you said, Margaret, you know. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a pit that, 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 that's very, 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 very hard, very dense. Um, and, but it does have a small amount of moisture in it, uh, not, not unlike, a, say, a popcorn kernel. When you pop corn, it, it, yeah. it, it, the moisture in it makes, it makes it explode. So with coffee, we roast it in a roaster in a coffee roaster. And this is a, this is a, um, you know, if to give you an image of what this is like, this coffee roaster is a perforated drum, kind of like your clothes dryer. Okay. And it spins around over usually an open flame, like a gas flame. Uh, some, there are some people exploring and playing around with wood, wood flames. And that's, that's kind of interesting. Um, but it's usually some sort of heat source, and it spins around and rotates at a, at you know we're talking about between 425, 475 degrees, something like that, and and it's, yeah. so it's pretty intense heat. It is now just a, a quick step back. Uh, we both had lived in New York, and I remember oh the wonderful um, 
aromas of, of autumn and winter with the roasted chestnuts. Remember how? Yeah. That, so is it kind yeah. of the same concept that you're roasting it, coffee instead of chestnuts? Yeah, it really is. It really is. Um, huh. And you know, when I when I first when I first started roasting at home. I used a, a saute pan and then I quickly moved to an antique uh, popcorn popper that oh. I could turn, turn a crank and mm-hmm. put it over a flame and this crank moved paddles that distributed and stirred the coffee beans in the pan. Um, so yeah, it's certainly very, very similar to uh, roasting chestnuts. Great. Okay, and so you are roasting these um, coffee beans, and, and, and where do you get them? Do you actually travel to these places, or do you... I, I don't. There are some people that, there, there are some people that do, and, and that's really, um, you know, that's really cool that they can, that they can do that. I'm not, I'm not to that point yet. That's something that I'm just beginning to develop some relationships with some farmers in El Salvador. I have a nephew that owns some land in El Salvador, and that's one of the the world's uh, premier uh, coffee growing uh, regions. And um, so I hope to someday travel down to oh you know Brazil and Colombia and and uh, go to Kenya and 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 see these these uh, farmers at work and see what they do and see the hard work that they that they do and the beans that travel so so far and and the consumers and educating the consumers on. Um, the complexities of, of uh, you know, the, the um, coffee is one of the, so, of you know, the three most traded items in the world are coffee, wheat, and oil. And um, uh, so it, it, it's a, um, there's a lot of people that make money off of coffee. And if yeah. we can create these direct relationships, and there's a lot of people that are doing this through a variety of sources, that, you know, through direct, uh, direct relationships with farmers that um, can import, they can import directly to their roast, roast works. Um, or, you know, uh, organizations like uh, Fair Trade, I think, are doing a, a noble deed uh, out there where they're trying to eliminate those people that are, um, you know, skimming a little bit too much off the top for the farmers not to get a piece of that is, it's, you know, so social justice plays uh, some role in this. And, um, you know, but I, you know, I, I have mixed, you know, I have, I have mixed feelings about that. I don't want to guilt people into buying uh, my products, certainly, but I want to provide them a really uh, good product that they can, you know, that they can then themselves feel good about too. And I think it's so unique, Tim, that that you really are taking a culinary approach to coffee. And you <laughs> are a classically cha- trained chef, and you're applying your expertise and experience to to really roasting uh, this coffee to uh, to bring it to a culinary level that that people can enjoy. And I understand it is just flying off the shelf that the different wholesalers. So uh, until everything's up and running with the retail store, which you're going to be hopefully opening at 1105 Chicago Avenue in January of 2012, um, where can someone go? Who are some of the distributors of of your well, I've got I've got three pl- I've got three places: two in Chicago and one in Evanston that uh, okay. that that sell our coffee. And uh, okay. so the the location in Evanston is the Vinick Wine Company, and that's V I N I C. And they're a, they're a wonderful wine company. San, Sandeep is the the owner and operator of that, and and uh, he does a really great job. Uh, but that's at 1509 Chicago Avenue in Evanston. 
so that's 1509 Chicago Avenue, Evanston, not Chicago. Chicago, not Evanston. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then the, the two Chicago locations are both on Western Avenue. Uh, one is called Amish Healthy Foods, and that's at 1023 Northwestern Avenue. And then the other one is 756 Northwestern Avenue. That's Farmer's Pride uh, Grocery Store, Farmer's Pride Market, uh, 756 Northwestern. And then, uh, again, Amish Healthy Foods at 1023 Northwestern. Um, and there's, we, we ho- certainly hope that that's going to expand in the next uh, few months. But mm-hmm. uh, right now, those three locations uh, offer our coffee. And uh, so I, I usually roast on Monday and mm-hmm. get the coffee to them on Tuesday. And uh, so the, the coffee is really at its peak after two or three days. And uh, it, it, uh, it's, it, they're moving it uh, all through the week and I, they get fresh product every, every, every week. So it's, it's wow. uh, and so the product that they get would be the, um, the actual beans that have been roasted. Yep. The whole, whole roasted beans. Whole and roasted um, beans. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then I had read somewhere that, that you're very particular that it cannot linger more than a certain number of days. Is that correct? Where I, you know, one of, I, uh, I, I, you can get kind of geeky about coffee <laughs> as you can get kind of geeky about most things. And I, I try, I, 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 I not that I want to talk derogatorily about my, 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 brothers and sisters that wear pocket pen protectors but uh i'm i'm just i fall just a slight bit short of of that and um but i i do i do appreciate my coffee black mm-hmm. as i as i don't like to have other things interfering with the flavors and this is again margaret this is my personal yes, exactly. this is my personal thing you know i i like to have the coffee ground just before i brew it and mm-hmm. i like to have it be the freshest roasted coffee as possible. And, right. you know, there's, there's, there's certainly room for argument and people have differing opinions and that's, that's, that's okay. Uh, there's room for that. And I, but, you know, coffee, like most foods and beverages that we consume is it's a personal preference. And yeah. there, there's, uh, there's all kinds of flavors and all kinds of things available. And, you know, and it's, and it's all, it's all, it's all good. Uh, right. and so, you know, as long as we're not drinking the coffee from the can that's pre-ground and been on the <laughs> shelf for you know six months, uh, it's all good coffee. <laughs> I love that. Now, now, um, I wonder if because uh, well, I have to admit I have one of those little pod coffee things, you know, the yeah, Keurig. Like, sure. So yeah, K cups, right? Yeah, K cups are great. I mean, can can yours then be put into something like that well eventually you know right now uh uh so green mountain coffee roasters yes is out of vermont and they mm-hmm. own that technology and oh. it, it and everybody is very very uh, everybody else <laughs> so everybody calls uh, people in the specialty coffee industry talk, speak derogatorily about uh oh. green mountain as the as the green giant oh. and, uh, um but th- but they they, they own that technology right now, and, and I think they do a they do a fine job. It's just yeah. they have a big market share, right. and they own that technology. They own the patent mm-hmm. on that technology. That patent is going to be coming up next year, and so oh. there are the, the specialty coffee roasters around the world are anticipating that that date when that 
technology becomes available because it will be able to be done at some point. And uh, so that's something we will definitely explore. I, I think, you know, I grew, I, I don't brew a pot of coffee in the morning. I brew in a, a system called a clever system. And it's, I brew a cup at a time and mm-hmm. it's an awesome way to brew coffee. And uh, I intend to, when we, once we open up shop, uh, I intend to have that as an option. I won't brew every cup that right. way because it'll take too long, but, uh, mm-hmm. But as a as an option to for people who have a little bit more time and are willing to yeah. be patient and if they want to talk about the coffee and there are people that really want to um, you know sit down and learn about the origin and learn about the way that you roasted it and things like this exactly. and and that'll be that'll be a great opportunity to create to create those connections that we that we all long for so much I mean exactly. you know cust- so much customer service is really based upon a feeling and the, you know, we go to, we go to places that, uh, that make us feel good. It, uh, so it, it's never about the food. It's never about the, the beverage. It's never about anything else other than the people that you are with and the, right. the love and conversation that happens during that particular time. Yeah. And, uh, it, it, and so that's really what I'm trying to achieve. Yeah. I think and- that, and exactly, and I think you're absolutely right. Coffee is a connecting point. And then yeah. as chef, you're applying, you know, this wonderful culinary skill to that, you know, as you talked about the individually brewed. It's like the, the individual presentation of a of a dish that you prepare. So I, sure. I just think that makes it even more special. And and I just applaud you in your efforts and going back to, to what your passion is and in, in roasting coffee. Um, just as a takeaway and a tidbit for the listeners, for those who might be brave enough to try to roast coffee, is, is this something they could try, you know, on their own at home to, to kind of just uh, attempt to, uh, and what would you suggest for them on that? I would, uh, well, I, I, a couple of things. Uh, of course, no, you cannot do that at home. I want you to come buy the roasted beans from me. Of course. But, uh, but no, that, that being said, no, I, I have, uh, I have two nephews that roast coffee that I've shown them how to roast coffee. And, uh, it's, it's really quite simple. And there's a lot of resources that you hmm. can, that you can look, that you can look for on the internet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, if, if, if your, if your listeners just, uh, if they did a, a search of, uh, just simply home roasting coffee, uh, and uh, they would find a lot of resources for um, uh, green beans, and they would find resources for people that you know have success and small failures and uh, big failures, and uh, <laughs> and do it your uh, own risk, I guess. Is yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it have a fire extinguisher close right, by. Right, right, and I always have a fire. Ex- Extinguisher close by, and as as my listeners know, and as you now know, and I'll I'll refer to you now at this point as Chef Tim. Do you have any words of wisdom for me as I begin my culinary journey here at an older age and am learning how to cook? What what would you give as an important tip for myself and those other listeners out there who are are just venturing into the kitchen as well? Well, I think that any act of cooking, how humble it may be, is is noble. And um, the, you know, I have several friends that um, that 
I dine with at their homes, and they're, they're very always very nervous about uh, oh. about cooking for me. And you know, cooking is is it, it is a it is an act of it is an act of contrition. It's an act of love. It's an act of caring for someone. And um, so I think I think we put too much pressure on ourselves about about that. And so there can be beauty in a simple. Uh, uh, a pot of soup or a really wonderful uh, fresh baked loaf of bread or a simple salad and you know it's really about the companionship and the community that you create so first of all i'd say you know don't put so much pressure on yourself relax enjoy it and right. un- and understand that even today in this especially today in this day and age we don't get these opportunities very often. I mean, we, my wife comes home from work late and oftentimes she has a cold plate of leftovers that's sitting on top of the stove. And uh, it's usually on the weekends, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night that, that the three of us, Kate and Patricia and I can sit down together and, and, and break bread. Um, So what I'm saying is that, Anything is going to be appreciated, even even the most miserable failures, at least in your eyes. <laughs> so, um, so keep practicing, yeah. keep making mistakes, and and learn from your mistakes. Okay. And you know, and do those recipes over and over again because you know my students at school they get tired of the the six or seven or eight recipes that I do, but they they throughout the semester they I see them progress. And it's because it's easy to make make something once and either do it well or or not, mm-hmm. and then move on. It's really a challenge to do it well and then continue to do it well and uh, a second, a third, a fourth time. So keep practicing, mm-hmm. and you're That's you're going to be fantastic, Margaret. Oh, Don't worry about it. So kind. I appreciate your words of encouragement and. And so basically, it's just really an act of contrition and also a practice of consistency and um, just connecting. I I love that. Just wise words from Chef Tim Coonan, who is also the founder of Big Shoulders Coffee Works. And you can um, learn more at BigShouldersCoffee.com. I'll also provide a link on the Kitchen Chat website. And I have one final question. Do you see... um, any trend or, or possible trend uh, using coffee as an ingredient in dishes? Absolutely, so absolutely. What is taking I, I, I see it. I see it in desserts. Uh, is the most prominent ways that I see it used. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I've I've seen it recently as a a dry rub on, say, a, a steak that you're oh. going to grill. Uh, I've seen I've seen uh, uh, espresso. Uh, so fine ground coffee and uh, fine dra- fine ground cocoa and fine ground uh, like chilies like cayenne pepper or something like this used as a, a dry rub on a steak and uh, the, the steak being seared or grilled over a hot fire and it, it's it's quite delicious. <laughs> oh, that yeah, that's gonna that is very interesting so maybe we'll see the next uh line uh, coming from you of being coffee rub <laughs> so, uh, maybe perhaps <laughs> that sounds great well thank you so very much chef tim coonan for being with us on kitchen chat for 
for educating us a little bit more here about coffee and the process of roasting. And uh, we wish you all the very best with your big shoulder coffee. Big, um, and everyone check that out in January 1105 Chicago Avenue. And um, I, I just love the, the idea and the concept, especially here on Kitchen Chat, because I broadcast from my kitchen counter with a cup of coffee right by my side. <laughs> and it's Margaret, best. thank you. It's been a pleasure. It's been really wonderful having a conversation with you. Well, and you. Uh, I, I look forward to speaking with you more. Same here, and I look forward to tasting that coffee. And and meanwhile, everyone, I just hope you can find those special moments throughout the week, uh, maybe even the weekend, to sit down with family and friends to gather at the table and over a cup of coffee connect and converse. And while you do, remember always, savor the day. Thank you for joining us today. If you're interested in Margaret's books, A Mother's Heart Knows, Pearl Girls Encountering Grit, Experiencing Grace, and Go Back and Be Happy, please just click on the covers on the webtalkradio.net page in front of you. Margaret would love to connect with you and hear from you, so join her on Twitter, Facebook, her blog, or click on this website to leave a note and share a recipe. Thank you again, and we'll see you here again for a new show next week.